Hello and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for joining us today for this expert briefing on the Procurement Bill, which has been kindly supported by Burgess Salmon. The government spends around £300 billion a year, a third of all public expenditure on procurement. And following the UK's exit from the EU, the government has proposed major reforms to the rules governing public sector buying. The government says the new procurement bill will create a simpler and more transparent system that makes it easier for SMEs to win contracts and for the government to disqualify poorly performing suppliers. The bill was introduced in the Lords and had its second reading on the 25th of May and the committee stage starts on the 4th of July and then it will be subsequently debated in the Commons. Ahead of all that, this event is an opportunity to discuss the bill's aims and content and the challenges to achieving the government's objectives. We'll start with a presentation on the key measures contained in the bill from Ed Green, Deputy Director, Commercial Policy, International and Reform at the Cabinet Office, and Lindsay McGuire, Head of Engagement for Procurement Reform at the Cabinet Office. And we'll be followed by responses from Mark Lee, Deputy Chief Commercial Officer at DWP, and Laura Wisdom, Partner at Burgess Salmon. Following the opening remarks, I'll ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please raise your hands if you're here in person uh, or submit them using the Q&A function if you're watching online. Uh, and please give your name when doing so. You can submit questions while we're speaking if you're watching online and I'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Uh, and I'd also encourage those both in person and watching remotely to tweet using hashtag IFG outsourcing. Right, uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to uh, Ed and Lindsay for some opening remarks. Thank you very much, Nick, and good evening, everyone, uh, uh, in the room and watching uh, live remotely or indeed listening after the fact on, on the podcast. Um, as Nick said, I'm Ed Green, and I'm the, the Programme Director for the Transforming Public Procurement Programme, of which this legislation is obviously a key part. I'm going to remind everyone of the aims and objectives and the little bit of the history as to how we got to here. And then Lindsay is going to step us through the bill and talk more about timescales uh, uh, towards implementation. So as Nick said, um, we think this is a, a, a really excellent opportunity to reform the public procurement system now that we have left uh, the EU to have a much simpler system and one that's designed to better meet the UK's needs with, with value for money uh, at its heart. Uh, while the bill has just been introduced, we've been working on this for some considerable time. In 2019, we started to think about the reforms we'd like to see and conducted a lot of stakeholder engagement. We set up a procurement transformation advisory panel, which had business leaders, academics, experts in international best practice, to inform a green paper that we uh, subsequently published in December uh, 2020 and responded to in, in December 2021. So what are our key objectives and aims then? Um, it's obviously critical that the bill uh, helps us comply with our international obligations. Procurement's a key part of trade agreements. Uh, indeed, we are uh, uh, parties to the World Trade Organization's Agreement on Public Procurement, and that's worth some uh, £1.3 trillion in access to global public opportunities annually for UK suppliers. So our regime will absolutely comply with those principles around non-discrimination, transparency, open and fair competition. 
But within those confines, it, we, we, we've got scope to design a much simpler system than the one everyone is currently operating. So some of the key measures in the green paper then uh, were consolidation. There are currently uh, four sets of regulations covering different types of procurement. So uh, the standard public contracts, uh, your defense contracts, your concession contracts, that's to say things like toll roads and hospital shops where, where users are essentially paying rather than public bodies and uh, regulations governing private utilities. And, and we're going to maintain some necessary sectoral exemptions there. But at the same time, there are a lot of rules that, that differ purely because of accidents of drafting and history. So we can consolidate those, which will make it much simpler for public bodies uh, and suppliers who operate under more than one set of those regulations. So a big, big simplification uh, win. We wanted to make the procedures much more flexible and much more commercial so that you could uh, better design your procurements to fit with uh, what you're buying. Uh, currently, the, the regulations are quite prescriptive about when you have to use which procedure, particularly when it comes to negotiating. Only in the public sector do you buy a car and not negotiate with the garage. Uh, not that I'm saying you need to negotiate on vehicle procurement necessarily, but have much more flexibility than we currently have. So you'll still be able to have uh, a competition where everyone can bid. You'll still be able to directly award a contract where uh, it's necessary for uh, uh, technical reasons or urgency. But then we wanted a procedure where you would be able to design the procurement best suited to what it was you were buying. So in the tech sector, that might be allowing product demos. In research and development and buying, it might be having a competition where you take on research partners, they drop off as the solutions uh, uh, prove not to fit what it is you want, and then you'll be able to buy something at the end without the need to try and work out how to run a further competition that doesn't sort of end up jeopardizing the intellectual property of the, the, the final suppliers. So we hope we fix that through what we're calling a competitive flexible procedure. We want to make procurement much more transparent, so much more information published throughout the procurement life cycle. We're, we're okay at the middle bit, uh, uh, you know, adverts and contract awards and all the rest of it, but having much more information up front about what we want to buy, and then much more information at the end about how what we've bought is actually performing, and information about what spend is going through, uh, what contract, that will help us. It'll help suppliers, it'll help data scientists, and it'll help those who uh, offer value-added services in that sort of arena uh, to scrutinize procurement decisions uh, much better. Um, as part of the simplification agenda and approving things for uh, small businesses, um, we want to make it easier uh, not to have to register multiple times. Uh, this is a little bit exclusive, I know, but does anyone in the audience want to shout out a guess as to how many systems a supplier might have to register on to bid for central government contracts at the minute? It's close to 120, I think. Well, it's, it's, it's happily at least not quite that bad. I mean, we stopped counting at 71. Um, <laughs> that is just central government, though. So we didn't like 71 as a number. We thought one was quite a good number. How about people have to register on one system? Uh, much better. And then, you know, they can fire off their uh, commonly needed data in procurements into different, uh, into different uh, procurement systems. So hopefully that will be a, a, a really good uh, win for suppliers. Um, we also want to make those arrangements that we use for commonly repeated purchases that they're known as framework agreements work a bit better because at the minute they uh, tend to lock suppliers out who aren't on them. So we want the idea of an open framework so that they can be reopened 
other suppliers who perhaps didn't get on first time can bid, you know, perhaps things have changed and they want to do that. And similarly, we have an open system at the minute called uh, dynamic purchasing systems where suppliers can join at any time, but their use is restricted. So the green paper said that we would broaden that out uh, uh, to try and, to try and uh, make, make those a, a, a bit better. Uh, and on, on, on remedies as well, this is, this is the ability to be able to challenge a procurement. Uh, we want to make that much quicker, uh, much simpler. The, the increased amount of information released, I think, will help that. But also, in a parallel process, we want to speed up um, uh, court... Uh, we want to help speed up through court reforms, and we're working very closely with others on that. Um, I talked about putting value for money at the heart of the regime, so the Green Paper proposed that we should no longer require value for money only to be considered from the point of view of the public body doing the buying. That's not how it works in the rest of the project. When you're doing your project appraisal and your business case, you're looking more broadly than that. So we want to make sure that um, that, is, uh, uh, that that is possible under the rules. That was in the Green Paper. Um, and we also proposed that we would uh, uh, strengthen the exclusion grounds. So for a supplier uh, that, that isn't fit to bid for, for public contracts because of the committed offences or performance, uh, poor performance issues, we want to strengthen those grounds and make those operate uh, much more clearly uh, than they do at the minute. Uh, Nick mentioned uh, second reading, so uh, that happened indeed on the, on the 25th of May, and, and a whole range of issues were raised there. Uh, people thinking that we shouldn't be regulating at all, people thinking that we hadn't uh, regulated nearly enough, and that was over the course of 25 interventions over a, a five-hour debate. So a, re a really good spectrum, and we look forward to uh, considering those issues uh, as, we, as we take the bill through the stages which, which Lindsay will talk about uh, soon. The other thing I'll just touch on finally is by way of coverage of the bill. Um, procurement is obviously, aspects of procurement are devolved, and I'm pleased to say that we've been working very closely with Wales and Northern Ireland, and they have agreed to be part of the bill for their devolved procurements, with, with certain derogations that they are uh, entitled to make uh, through their uh, devolved uh, competence, and those derogations are reflected in the bill. Um, at second reading, uh, the Minister, Lord True, did say there would be a number of government amendments, and those have now been tabled. So, again, they will be uh, debated uh, in committee. So I'll stop there, and I'll hand over to Lindsay to uh, talk about the bill, uh, how those uh, Green Paper issues manifested themselves, and to talk about uh, timescales moving forward. Lindsay. Thank you, Ed. Um, and, yes, absolutely, I think... What we've been saying when we've been um, engaging quite widely on this is that the sheer number of topics that were, were raised at second reading um, just goes to show just how important procurement is. So if there were any naysayers that thought procurement was just an enabling function, I think the fact that we had five hours of debate about it in the House demonstrates that we actually are important <laughs> going forward. Um, so we, um, obviously, this is a first for us in terms of primary legislation. So we've been quite used to implementing um, secondary legislation for procurement based on the EU directives. Um, so a few things in the bill were quite a deliberate choice um, and it's been quite interesting reading a lot of the feedback that we're getting around um, things like terminology and style and language which feel like quite technical points um, but actually um, we have moved away from the EU terminology quite deliberately because a lot of that was around um, structuring it you know, as a member state. And so we've created a, a new language and we've created new terminology. And some of that is going to feel a little bit 
uncomfortable, certainly for those, including myself, who've been used to using procurement regulations for most of my career. Um, but we think we've got a really good path forward. And what we're doing is we're taking that feedback on board. And as Ed said, there are, there are going to be some amendments to the, the bill. But that was quite deliberate. And I felt it important to make that make that point. Um, in terms of the the process, you know, it's 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 in Parliament, so everything is completely pu you know public. So, um, in addition to, I'm sure all of you have read uh, 122 pages of the procurement bill itself. But if you wanted a bit more, um, we've also got um, very detailed explanatory notes which explain the intent behind some of what we're doing. Um, but we've also done a, a very detailed 60-page um, economic impact assessment, which shows what we think the impact of these reforms actually will be on the UK economy um, and alongside um, all of the, the, the amendments um, everything gets updated daily so it's a it's a whirlwind at the moment and all of that is in the public domain and I've been encouraging people to you know dip in to have a look to read to, to sort of feel how the the bill will look going forward I think one of the other things that we wanted to be clear on is that um, there is a difference between primary legislation, obviously, and secondary legislation. Um, so at the moment, there are um, some powers in the bill to enact um, elements of the transparency regime, which um, Ed mentioned. Um, this will be coming forward in secondary legislation, and we are working on that in parallel. Um, so just because there isn't something that was expected in, on the face of the bill at the moment doesn't mean it won't be there once it's gone through the parliamentary process. Um, so we just wanted to, to clarify that that was the, that was the case. Um, also, and I think this is probably um, you know, fairly obvious for, a, for an audience that clearly understands legislation, but there may be some changes as we go through. Um, so one of the challenges that we have, and I'll talk a bit about our, our learning and development offer in a minute, is um, at what point we can be reasonably confident that what's going to be in the, in the regime and how procurement people are going to be using this is actually reflected in the legislation. And obviously that's all part of going through the parliamentary process. Um, but that is new for procurement people, and so we want to sort of you know, emphasise that actually, as things go through, um, it may it may change. Um, so all of that information is published. Um, what we expect on time sales, as Nick said, we're going into committee on the. 4th of July, Monday. Um, we're going to be spending the weekend going through our um, non-government amendments. Um, but we have an, a few other dates, and all of that will be live. Um, so I'm certain that um, you know people are going to be logging in and watching Parliament live for, uh, what do we reckon, eight hours at a time? Uh, four, I think, with an occasional possible extension. Four hours. That's not what you told me. <laughs> OK, four hours at a time. Um, and, uh, and all of that will be public. You know, uh, and we'll get a good feeling next week as to the really core issues that the opposition are, are looking at and, and what that means for procurement. Following that, um, there is a, a period of recess, which I think we are uh, going to need, certainly. Um, uh, and after that, we'll enter into report stage in the Lords, and then we'll go through the whole process again in, in the Commons. Um, obviously, um, because we're, we're at the behest of Parliament, we can't say about timescales, um, but we are um, looking at our planning and we are trying to be as specific as possible around when the actual regime will be implemented. So I just wanted to touch slightly on um, the, the kind of structure of the bill, which again seems quite technical, but there are some bits which we want to draw people's attention to. Um, so obviously there's 13 parts. Um, as Ed said, we've um, exempted, um, you know, private utilities, for example, who we know operate in quite a different um, competitive environment. Um, and there are some, uh, you know, clear definitions around who is in the scope of this bill. 
we recognise that there are always going to be some bodies who are um, in, in the middle, and it's never entirely clear whether they're you know, public bodies or, or, or private bodies. Um, but our intention as Cabinet Office was very much to um, not change or, or enhance or, or significantly alter the scope from as is. Um, so what we're saying is, regardless of the, the legislation, our intention was very much to keep uh, those who use um, public procurement regulations at the moment in scope. Um, we've also embedded um, procurement objectives in our uh, legislation, which is um, a new and very different to how the EU approach it. Um, and I think this is really important because what it does is actually put um, obligations on contracting authorities to think about the really important things in procurement. So non-discrimination of um, suppliers, um, fair treatment, um, you know, acting with integrity, um, public benefit, all of the really core things that we know procurement can have a, an impact on. Now, the real meat of the bill and uh, one of the real kind of um, benefits that we see, as Ed, as Ed has explained, is um, in part three and four, and this is how procurement is going to function. Um, and we're introducing a lot more flexibility. Um, but we've also recognised that um, it's not just about awarding a contract. We need to be really specific around contract management. Um, and so part four of the bill um, lays out expectations around what modifications need to look like, um, you know, really uh, clear on termination, really clear on what rights are um, relevant to that termination. And we also wanted to make sure that the bill um, put obligations on prime contractors to um, protect, um, you know, small businesses and um, new entrants perhaps in, in their supply chains. So there are some um, provisions for making sure that we're paying promptly, for example, and our suppliers, our tier one suppliers are actually doing the same as well. So parts three and four really kind of lay out um, how it was going to function and what procurement teams need to be aware of. Um, there are some other um, interesting areas. So, for example, um, we are very, uh, you know, clearly bound by our international agreements, as Ed said, and the bill does cover an awful lot of that in terms of treaty state suppliers. There is a bit of an overlap with some of the trade elements going on, and that's always going to be quite important when we're looking at the access that our suppliers, our UK suppliers, have to a 1.3 trillion pounds worth of overseas suppliers. Um, and we recognise the importance of procurement oversight. Um, so we have included powers in part 10 of the bill, um, which will enable Cabinet Office to establish a procurement review unit. And the idea behind this is to very much check that the regime is working, but also provide a mechanism for suppliers to raise concerns around um, how procurement is working in the wider public sector. And that's going to be an incredibly effective way of monitoring whether this is working, um, but also um, issuing guidance, um, continuously improving, offering um, you know, ad ad advice on whether there may be systemic issues around procurement. So one of the things that we keep getting asked is what are the things that we're most looking forward to. Um, so I think we've mentioned the flexibility. Um, I think that's really going to be quite important, and I'm interested to hear um, Mark's views on that as well, actually, as a, as a practitioner. Um, the programme itself, um, uh, we've always been clear that legislation actually is, is the first part in this. Um, there's, there's no point in, in putting um, brand new primary legislation in if we're not going to have um, systems and learning and development to underpin that. So Cabinet Office has got a learning and development offer which will be rolling out for contracting authorities um, and this ranges from everything from knowledge drops for 
you know, interested senior people, maybe your budget holders or, or directors, all the way through to very detailed, intense, um, instructor-led deep dives, which will be for people who are actually doing the complex procurements. Um, and we've been really clear that actually, in order to maximise the flexibility and the benefits that the reform is going to bring, that learning and development offer is very important. And as Ed said, um, alongside that, our digital work stream and our centralisation of data and where we're moving towards a one platform integrated system, that's going to be incredibly important both for small businesses but also for ourselves when it comes to sharing data and actually collaborating across the public sector. Um, so just quickly on timescales, so I've mentioned it's very difficult to say how long the parliamentary process will take. Um, go live won't be until 2023 at the earliest. We have committed to giving a six-month implementation period. So once um, everything's through Parliament, um, we will have that six months where we will work closely with contracting authorities on both the learning and development, but also providing some guidance around transition. So obviously, it is going to be a little bit challenging for a while because we'll have two regimes. So if you've got a, a framework under the, the existing regime, you know, effectively you'll have contracts under the, the old regime and that's going to get um, uh, quite challenging. But we as Cabinet Office um, are offering you know, guidance and we'll be working with, with the public sector to, to roll that out. Um, we also are saying to contracting authorities at the moment to... Um, in order for people to prepare for this, um, what we're saying is think about your organisational capacity, think about... Um, what people you want to go on the training, for example, think about your resourcing, um, but also think about your pipeline of activity. So we are coming up to a point of change and transformation. Um, so if there is something which contracting authorities are about to procure, which is really big, complex, really exciting, really new, um, maybe there's a decision to be made around, um, you know, potentially delaying that so they can maximise the flexibility that our new kind of commercial landscape is going to give. Um, there's no action really to take at the moment because we'll be working very closely with the public sector on that implementation. But we want people to start thinking about what this change is going to mean for their organisations. So I think that was it for me. Um, I've got, in summary, it's a very exciting time for procurement. Um, so in case that's uh, not clear, um, you know, we're quite, we're quite excited. And um, I think once we go into the parliamentary um, process and once we've um, got a clear understanding of what the, the bill is actually going to look like, we can really put that focus on learning and development um, and continuing to engage um, with our stakeholders throughout the public sector. Um, that was it, yeah. Great, perfect. Uh, thank you so much um, to both of you. We're now going to go to uh, Mark and Laura for some uh, short reflections before we open it up to questions. So, Mark first. Okay, so good, good evening, everybody. So, um, as a practitioner uh, and a leader of people um, using the regulations every day, I actually probably also think it's an important, exciting opportunity. Um, it wouldn't surprise you. I work for the government. I'm on the panel, so, of course, I would think that, wouldn't I? <laughs> But in reality, I think um, what it does is it unlocks a lot of flexibility. Um, there's flexibility in some of the regulations we have today. The light touch regime is absolutely quite fantastic. But actually, this allows you to use that flexibility across a much wider footprint of what we buy. Uh, and there's a classic stereotype, isn't there, of procurement people. We're very boring. Um, we follow the process exactly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually, the reality is there's been a journey towards being more outcome-driven. And actually, part of the jigsaw that we really need is actually the ability to shape how we design procurements and how we deliver procurements in order to actually you know, 
drive forward to that outcome-based purchasing context. And actually, I think this program of work in the reforms actually really helps us do that across a really quite wide spectrum of what we buy. So actually, I think it's really quite fundamental. Um, even though probably people think it's boring, it actually gives us a lot more opportunity to be flexible. And flexibility is king because if you think about some of the complex, difficult things we buy, actually what this will enable us to do is work much harder with the markets to actually design procurement systems and processes and ways of working that drive collaboration and enable government to buy things that really make much more of a difference to the delivery of those services and in my eyes really move away from some of the processes that perhaps sometimes drive um, buyer's remorse and winner's guilt. You know? So I think that's really important. If you think about some of the processes that this gives us you know, and the ability to share information and understand information and modify procurement as you go through it to capture the best value and capture the best understanding from providers, I think, it's, I think it is really important. What it does do is it puts a lot of onus on us as practitioners to be much more aware of what's happening in our markets, to be much more engaged with our markets and working with our markets to design solutions that enable us to deliver um, society's needs and citizens' needs. That's a bit of a step change. We've got plenty of evidence that that can be done really well. There's probably plenty of evidence that I don't want to hear that it can be done badly. Um, but you know, we also always should be setting out that aspiration. And you know, I think there's a lot of evidence in government that when we get that right, we can do that really, really well. Um, so I think there's skin in the game for us as provider, as practitioners rather. But I also think there's quite a lot of skin in the game for the people that provide those services to understand the new systems, understand what they need to do, so they can influence us and build um, the services that we want to buy and the services that are. Um, taxpayers and citizens expect us to deliver. The last thing I think I'd say is um, actually the practicalities and the technicalities of these changes are going to be the easy bit. The challenge is going to be the cultural shift. The cultural shift in how people think about procurement, the cultural shift in how we as practitioners think about it, um, but also um, the cultural shift in embracing those changes. Um, and commissioners embracing those changes so that they're willing to um, not do it the way it's always been done. I hate those words, you know, I really hate those words. Um, but I hear them from time to time, although not so often as I used to, I have to say. Um, but you do hear those words. Uh, and also, for the people that we work with who deliver policy and, you know, in other areas in local authorities who work with um, commissioners, actually, it's those people who also need to come on a cultural journey. So it will no longer be about this is the process and this is the outcome you're going to get. It'll be far more about working in tandem with those colleagues to design uh, and work with them so that the policy needs are met, because that's the primary goal of buying anything, and that we work with them to deliver those policy needs through understanding what we can do. And it isn't just this is the process and what you get. So unsurprisingly, I'm really positive about this. Otherwise, you know, the cabinet office would never have invited me here. Um, but you know, having spent 20 years in the private sector, you know, um, working in procurement, I think this is a great opportunity to keep some of the great things that um, public procurement does, but also blend some of the skills and techniques that our private colleagues use every day for the betterment of everybody. So you know, I am positive. 
Thank you. I, I suspect most people in the, the room and, and listening are also unusually excited about the procurement bill versus the uh, general population uh, as well. Yeah. Um, My I'm, wife is really not interested. No, in that, so. <laughs> mine neither. <laughs> um, right, finally, um, I'm going to come to Laura. Thanks. Um, I mean, firstly, I would like to recognise the hard work that has gone into the bill. It really has been kind of obviously a huge piece of work. And thanks to Ed and Lindsay for that helpful presentation and Mark for your comments with which I you know, wholeheartedly agree. Um, and I think it's been really good to see that there has been so much engagement with the procurement community as this bill has been developed. That's been, you know, really refreshing to see and I think has resulted in a better output because of it. Um, I know that Mark has, you know, talked about procurement, procurement people, not just procurement lawyers, but um, being boring. Um, but I actually think that this bill is a really fascinating display of kind of post-Brexit lawmaking. Um, obviously, you know, procurement is one of those areas that has been touted as offering a kind of Brexit dividend and the first words in the green paper were about, you know, this historic opportunity after the transition period to overhaul the outdated procurement regime um, and instead to have a simplified, flexible procedure, deliver the best commercial outcomes with the least burden to both the public and private sector, all of which absolutely great. So if we actually assess the procurement bill against that, you know, where do we end up? Um, so in terms of simplification, you know, as we've mentioned, we now have one set of rules, which as somebody who has had four sets of binders on my desk for a very long time now, I'm very pleased to see that it is now in one. Um, that is always good news. But, you know, as has been mentioned, there are still quite a few differentiators. We've got the light touch regime, concessions, utilities, defence. You know, all of these things are going to need to be considered separately. Um, and also, although we may have kind of less in terms of the bill, we are, you know, still waiting, you know, with very looking forward to seeing the secondary legislation and, and the guidance. And there does seem to be a lot of guidance potentially that's going to be coming out. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how things are simplified when we've got the primary legislation, the secondary legislation and the guidance and the flowcharts and the, you know, template documents, etc. I think in terms of simplification, obviously, you know, as Lindsay mentioned, the move to a different vocabulary is really interesting and has been a, you know, a deliberate choice. Um, and it is more kind of plain English in as much as plain English procurement can get where there is a limit. Um, and it is a very clear signal that we are moving away from the old European regime, which is really interesting. But that does bring with it some really interesting questions, particularly as a lawyer in relation to the terms that are used, particularly where kind of it's not entirely clear if different terms are meant to mean different things. And I think it will be kind of really interesting to see, um, firstly, the guidance that we're expecting to see. I think we're expecting to see some kind of translation guidance between the two of where things are meant to mean different things and where they're not. Um, but also to see how the differences in language do get used in future challenges, because it is a bit of a lawyer's playground on picking up everywhere where, you know, materiality used to be and now isn't. And, you know, all of those sorts of areas are, you know, really open to interpretation at the moment. Um, in terms of flexibility, you know, we have fewer procurement routes with kind of less structure. But exactly as Marcus said, this really relies on the cultural shift underneath and authorities really having the um, skills, time and expertise and confidence to do things in a different way. And, you know, that is a really big shift for a lot of authorities. And there will, you know, need to be quite a lot of investment put into doing things in a different way. And I do welcome the fact that I think the Cabinet Office, when they've been talking about the training, it's been talking about not just 
black letter law, not just what do the words say, but actually how do we give people the confidence to do things in a different way and really take advantage of the opportunities offered by this. Um, I think it's also interesting in terms of flexibility, the very obvious shift from the EU principle that this is all about opening up markets through to actually this is not just about opening up markets, this is about how do we use procurement in a positive way to forward a domestic agenda. So that's, you know, you can see that with the, you know, national procurement policy statement, for example, the principles, the objectives. Um, but again, what will be interesting to see is you know, how contracting authorities are going to weigh up all of those different principles. There's going to be a huge amount for them to have regard to in all of their decisions. And, you know, the flexibility they will have will be limited by practical considerations such as time, such as budget. So as much as we can all agree that, you know, a lot of the domestic agenda is, is a very positive one in terms of social value and using this for positive um, social outcomes, in practice, um, I'm interested to see if that's kind of, you know, if that is actually going to follow through. Um, so just quickly, I mean, is this an overhaul, the overhaul that was promised as a result of, of Brexit? I mean, in my view, it's not. I, I think that it is more of an evolution rather than a revolution, which is understandable to a degree due to the kind of GPA backdrop. Um, but I think you know, really, there is a lot of opportunity here. And exactly as Mark has said, the amount to which that opportunity is taken up and is used um, will be kind of, you know, the really interesting thing to see, to see about this. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to ask a question to each of the panellists before opening up to Q&A. Some great questions already coming in um, online, so do keep those um, coming. Firstly, I wanted to pick up um, to you, Ed, first, the question we've all discussed quite a lot, the balance of where the detail is, whether it's in primary legislation, secondary legislation, um, guidance. And I've heard the current bill described as skeletal by lawyers, though not the lawyer on the panel uh, currently, uh, because so much has been left to secondary legislation and guidance, draft versions of which, as you said, um, haven't been published yet. And I just wondered if you could kind of talk us through the government's approach to that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I wouldn't describe it as a skeleton bill insofar as, you know, it's not a collection of powers uh, which enables us to deliver secondary legislation. Clearly, there are some. You would never, for instance, I don't think, want the notice field, so the, the pieces of information that you have to enter into meet transparency requirements on the face of a bill, you know, technology changes, priorities change. I, I think, I think you know, that, that, that is a use for secondary uh, legislation, as, uh, you know, the, all the obligations that trigger... Uh, 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 transparency things are on the face of the bill. It, you know, the, 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 most of the definitions are. It has uh, information on the procedures that you need to run and, and how best to do that. It sets out provisions on, uh, you know, some of the commercial tools. So, so, so I wouldn't call it a skeleton bill in that sense. But clearly it is, it is a blended regime with some primary, with some secondary and with some guidance. So, so it's designed to be a whole where, you know, the bits we need to anchor uh, for the long term are in primary. Uh, the, the bits where we need to set out more details, such as notices, are in, are, are in the secondary. And then, and then you'll have, as Laura said, uh, and Lindsay said as well, some of the guidance, which might be things around, uh, you know, how, how, how might we run some of these flexible procedures? Because while we want to maintain flexibility, there's no point hundreds of contracting authorities 
ostensibly trying to run something the same way but accidentally doing it differently where that's not necessary or conducive to the outcome. So if we can provide some templates that say actually if you are going to run something that requires an innovative solution not on the market, this is how you might want to do it. You know, they'll, they'll be able to uh, look at that and see if it works for them, but, but at least we'll have given them a starting point to reduce inconsistency that we don't need to see while at the same time maintaining the flexibility uh, that the new regime is intended to offer. Thank you. And, um, and I appreciate that timeline is always a bit difficult to, to judge, but can you give us a feel of when we're likely to, for example, get the kind of draft secretary legislation and guidance and presumably not before the kind of committee stage in the Lords on Monday, but potentially before <laughs> uh, report stage or, or when, but before it goes to the Commons? Um, <coughs> Possibly. We actually had a, a, a meeting about that literally just before we, we came. Uh, so um, it, it's a little bit difficult to say because there's a couple of moving parts, obviously. And um, But we are um, probably going to be working on it in, in parallel. So um, I think what we'll do is, once we've got a clearer idea of timescales and our process for that secondary legislation, um, we'll be much more open about that and we'll communicate that to our stakeholders. Um, we are um, a, a part of the work um, that we've been doing is establishing different sector groups um, who are supporting us through this process. So, um, you know, we have housing, universities, utilities, local government association have been really, um, really supportive. And, and those are the groups that will be testing some of the principles of secondary legislation through. Um, so there will be a, a a stakeholder engagement element to it and that obviously has an impact on timescales um, how I mean I realize that's a very politician's answer because I haven't <laughs> actually answered the question um, but we will certainly communicate that when we're in a better position to be able to do that great thank you and Mark just as a from a practitioner perspective how much does it does it matter to you at all where the detail is whether it's in primary secondary or guidance uh, so I don't think it, it matters too much um, although the the balance of where you'd like it to be is probably more towards guidance than legislation, because if it's in guidance, you might have more room to maneuver and learn and iterate on a, on a quicker time frame than if it's certainly in primary, that's almost impossible. And if it's in secondary, that's more challenging. So from a practitioner's perspective, you want really clear principles in the main legislation, a really good architecture in the secondary legislation, but you want the ability to to make the guidance do what you need it to do on a on a proper time frame for evolution learning and best practice and continuous improvement so actually you know i think the architecture works better from a practitioner's perspective than um, pushing it into into the legal context i guess my learned friend might disagree but um, <laughs> you know um, as an aside i never met a lawyer um, worrying about procurement until I joined the public sector. Um, and then I've met one almost every day. So, you know, I, I really think that's the other thing about how do we get to a regime where innovation and challenge are not mutual enemies. And, and Laura, just finally to you, um, will the kind of lack of clarity on the face of the bill increase the chances of litigation? Um, I think, I mean, potentially, obviously, um, but you know, the aim of all of the training that's going on, all of the engagement that's going on, is to give people the increased certainty. Um, I think there are, there are going to be questions that will need to go to court, obviously, in relation to it. And lawyers are going to be, as I said, looking at all of this very closely. Um, but 
what I do think is particularly interesting is there has been quite a movement in the bill um, in some cases to some quite subjective language in terms of um, which does seem to be more of a signal to the courts that there are areas which they should keep their hands off a little bit more. Um, and, you know, that is quite interesting. So in relation to award criteria, for example, it's not just an absolute obligation, it's what does the contracting authority consider that it should be. And I think that sort of, um, you know, that sort of language in there does suggest to the courts that actually this isn't an area which you should be playing around with. There should be a relatively wide margin of discretion afforded to procurement professionals to be getting on and doing their job. Great, thank you. I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience first. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to take the first three hands that I saw, which is here at the front, and there's a mic coming to you, and then here, and then here. Hi, thank you. Um, I work for Big Brother Watch, which is a civil liberties campaign group, and we're campaigning to see um, Chinese state-owned surveillance companies kicked out of the public sector. Um, due to their links to genocide in Xinjiang. And a lot of parliamentarians are really concerned about this as well. It was raised in the second reading. Um, and we've actually just worked with parliamentarians to lay an amendment that would see um, companies involved in serious human rights abuses placed on the government's central debarment list, which is in the bill. Um, and we were expecting to see a bit more in the bill about human rights abuses because uh, the government had promised quite a few times that the way to deal with these companies, specifically these Chinese companies, would be in the bill, but it wasn't on the face of it. So I guess I was wondering, to put that to a question, um, how the panellists see um, the role of the procurement bill for ensuring that taxpayers' money is not going to be going to funding um, human rights abuses in the UK or abroad. Brilliant. Thank you. Sorry, what was your name? Madeline. Madeline, thank you. Hi, so I have a question really about the, the, the sort of guidance and the templates and the flexibility. I, I'm very excited about the new bill, but, but, but more because I'm slightly frightened than um, uh, anything else. Um, not so much about departments like DWP, who I think have a very professional and capable procurement capability. They buy lots of stuff often enough to, to know how to do it. But in some sort of the longer tail of public sector where organisations might only buy a particular category once every few years, the notion of them exploring that flexibility is actually quite alarming. Um, and so I'm, I'm keen to know how, the, how far the guidance will go in terms of sort of templating different types of, of procurement and, and how you intend to go about creating those templates. Is it the sort of thing that you, you might do involving the market or the supplier community or trade associations? And, and if I could just, with a sort of slightly Very second quickly. part of the question, what happens to case law with this new bill? Because lots of the principles of procurement law are going to be the same. Does the case law from the old regulations still apply, or does some of it still apply? Great, thank you. And so, what was your name? Sorry, James Jones. James. Uh, yeah, hi. My name is Gerard, Gerard Topless from Pagabo. Um, I have one very specific question. Will you be able to do a direct award from a DPS? It's a very simple question. Second one on the, just really challenge a little bit of what you said, Lindsay, because I was very interested in it, which was the training and the support and the learning and development, I think is how you framed it. Um, because Mark's point about having uh, it being sort of separated from primary and secondary and the guidance could lend itself to more challenge from suppliers. And uh, that, that is something obviously we ought to try and avoid. So that training and development, that learning and development is very important. So I'd like to understand a bit more about that. Okay, great. Uh, I'm going to come to our uh, cabinet office colleagues uh, first on that. 
So shall I, shall I take exclusions and the DPS question or dynamic markets and you take the two training related questions and talk about the reach of the deep dives? Yep. Perhaps. So on, on, on the, on, on the uh, exclusions question, we're, we're, we're engaging very closely uh, with, with interested groups and parliamentarians on this. I mean, as the exclusions grounds stand, we've we strengthened them uh, based on the existing regime. So, so a couple of relevant ones. Um, we've strengthened the modern slavery grounds so that you don't just require a conviction. Uh, obviously, uh, that, that's difficult in some jurisdictions and, and isn't going to happen in others. So now, now it's a case of where, there, where there's sufficient evidence of, of of those sorts of offences, then uh, a contracting authority will be able to uh, take an exclusion decision. There's, all, there's also a national security ground. Uh, previously, you had to sort of exempt an entire procurement uh, uh, for national security. You needed a justification for that, which was quite a high bar. One of the exclusion grounds will now allow a contracting authority to refer a supplier that they think might be a national security risk to, to, to a minister of the crown, and the minister will be able to take a view on whether that supplier does present a national security risk, and obviously will continue uh, to engage throughout the bill's passage on these issues. On dynamic markets, will you be able to directly award? No, and that's simply because there's no competition to get onto a dynamic market in terms of award criteria. All you're really doing is assessing selection, so if you were able to do that, there'd be no competition anywhere in the process. Great. Uh, yes, so just on the um, question about uh, uh, the longer tail of um, the public sector, um, so I think that's a, that's a really valid point, and um, one of the things that we're keen to emphasise is that, um, you know, just because there is flexibility, it's not going to be appropriate for every single area of spend. There has to be a level of commercial realism which says if you're buying stationery, you probably don't need a completely brand new flexible procedure. Um, and one of the things that we're doing at the moment is um, basically mapping... A, a lot of different you know sectors and how they purchase and building up potential modern model scenarios now obviously the challenge is that each sector has got their own slight nuances um, but one of the one of the you know reasons why we've done so much on sector engagement is to try and make sure that we're capturing everything um, and I think some of that will have to come out in the learning and development as well in terms of um, you know when to use the apl applicable models etc um, and then moving on that go goes quite nicely on to the next question about learning and development um, so the plan is is that there's there's four tiers of, of learning and development it starts at um, what we're calling knowledge drops which are um, podcasts kind of 30, 30 45 minute sessions which will be for um interested um senior people or suppliers or anyone with an interest in public sector procurement um we've got a, an e-learning offer which will be around about 10 hours which will take you through um you know what's changed why procurement is important and that'll be more for maybe your um you know deputy directors who don't actually have to know the real weeds of the the actual procurement and then the instructor-led deep dives will be for your practitioners um and we have um funding available to um do that for you know every single contracting authority who would be you know interested in that and we're working quite closely with trade associations as you mentioned to to sort of see who can be the almost like the, the voice and the, the gatekeeper of the of the sectors that we know we need to target the one bit which i didn't mention which i think is also really important for both of those points actually both the model scenarios and the learning and development is um we're really keen to establish um a confidently establish a, a number of communities of practice 
Um, so we're very good at, well, we're, we're much better now in the, in the government commercial function at talking to each other. Um, well, Mark's here and, you know, we're different departments, so that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, uh, but we're not always that good at talking across sector. And what you find then is that you have different levels of, of practice in um, housing, in local government, in utilities, but actually everyone's got similar problems. We've got a, a market which has um, got, you know, similar challenges. We've got supply chains, which are, you know, so so the more that we can coalesce that and the more that we can support that collaboration, um, I think should help um, in terms of that continuous improvement. And I see that as being a real goal of, of coalescing across the public sector. It's early days, but if we can give, um, you know, focus to it as Cabinet Office, then that's, that's a good start, I think. And Laura, I just want to come to you quickly on that question of case law and what happens to it. I mean, the typical lawyer's answer. I mean, <laughs> it is a very complicated question of what happens to case law. I mean, probably it's an, a, it's a senior level of procurement geek that would do that kind of hour-long one. But I think in summary, there's a spectrum. There's going to be the places where you've basically got kind of continuity. So equal treatment would be an obvious place where basically we are continuing with, you know, what was effectively the same principle. You're then going to have the places where we are deliberately moving away, in which case that's going to be the other end of the spectrum. And then there's going to be a big grey area in the middle where the case law is going to be persuasive but not conclusive. And, you know, I think lawyers are going to be spending a huge amount of time kind of trying to get it in and arguing with it in every case. And it's going to take a while for that to settle down. Thank you. I'm just going to go to some um, questions online before coming to some more um, in person. Uh, so we've got a question here from um, Simon Dennis, picking up on the, the, the comment you made about the uh, amendments that have been made by the government um, going into the um, next stage of the law, saying there's been 300 plus government amendments tabled with little time to address, and some lords have uh, expressed dissatisfaction uh, with this. Is there any consideration of delaying things to give them time to properly consider? And com committee stage is uh, set up for Monday. Clearly, ministers uh, and officials are, do are doing a lot of engagement. Uh, worth just talking about the types of amendments some of those are. So uh, some of them are, are uh, technical tidying up amendments. Uh, some of them are ones where stakeholders have flagged things to us. So there was a question as to whether the definition of a contracting authority, so a public body doing the buying, whether it had been inadvertently widened uh, to capture companies set up by contracting authorities, local authorities in particular, that were purely commercial. That, that came as a direct result through engagement. One, one of the things you have, because this oh, sorry, is... Sorry, can I just... We actually had a question on that. And what's the answer? Are they included? Uh, let, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up in a minute. OK. So, um, uh, so... Uh, so there are, there are various things that we need to think about that have been raised. One of the reasons there are so many is because it's a bill reforming an entire system. So where, for instance, you have... Um, uh, it referred to in one place because it's a system and the term gets used again, say, or the, or the definition applies elsewhere, then, then there are going to be some amendments consequent off the back of that one amendment. So, that, 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 you know, in part, that's why... That's why that's why it's um, such a such a uh, such an issue. I mean, in, in, uh, in terms of local authority companies, uh, we've clarified that where uh, local authority companies are owned by several local authorities uh, and providing services to those local authorities, they are 
uh, you know, they, they can still win work without the need to compete. That, that was a big push uh, that, that we've clarified this time. And our intention is absolutely not to capture uh, local authority companies which, um, uh, which uh, perform purely commercial functions on, on, on the open market. And we're still in dialogue to make sure that um, the definition we have absolutely doesn't do that because that's not the intention. As Lindsay says on that, um, our intention is not, not to broaden the scope. Uh, and, 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 you know, organisations will still need to apply the tests in the bill to check whether they themselves are in scope as, as they do now. So, you know, you wouldn't get an exhaustive list of every single body or indeed every single type of body, local authorities and other bodies, you know, uh, sorry, but sort of bodies on the fringes, should I say, will we'll still need to make those uh, determinations themselves. But, it, but it's not our intention to capture, as I say, uh, purely commercial entities in, 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 in the definition. And we're still in dialogue to make sure that that's... Uh, that, that's the case. Great. I just want to take one more um, from online from Martin Wheatcroft, who's asked, uh, how do you make sure the procurement and supplier effort is appropriate to the size uh, and complexity of contracts? Uh, this is often a barrier for SMEs when the costs and hassles of the process are so high that it's not worth bidding. Can I take that? Do you want to take that, Mark? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's no perfect answer to that. Um, but I think, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to work out what the right proportionate um, route to market is for what we're buying. Um, and the greater the level of complexity, um, the more demanding the procurement and the activity. But also I think what we also spend a lot of time when we're thinking about really complex things is working with the market to manage um, the spaces in which um, SMEs and VCSEs can actually play a part in that, even though they may not be a prime. So if we look at um, the amount of money the DWP spends in certain markets, that's gone up. The amount of money we spend on, indirectly on VCSE, VCSEs and SMEs has gone up. Maybe not always directly, but because we're spending time on creating opportunities for those parties to be part of that rich tapestry of support that provides the overall service. So there's more than one way of, I guess, enabling that. Um, and for our own context, you know, <clears throat> there are only so many civil servants, there's only so many hours in the day. You know, we don't want to design something that's overly onerous for us either. So you know, we're always trying to judge what is the right level of scrutiny and engagement and testing in order to provide surety of, of, of market and supply. Great, let's do another quick round of questions from the audience. And can I ask that they are short and are in fact questions uh, rather than statements? That would be great. I'm going to come to the two people at the front here. Hello, uh, Ian McGill from Spend Network. Um, I was really interested, uh, we've been doing some work about systems and a lot of the providers are talking about upgrading their systems to compliant systems but not actually freeing up the systems to be able to use the flexibility that will be in the uh, new legislation. So you may end up with just the same old stuff happening because although you train people to use the system, the system flexibility isn't built in. Can you say anything about whether you're doing anything to kind of loosen, loosen the ties that bind uh, users? Good, thank you. And then just yeah, one quick final question here before. 
Um, hello, uh, my name is Samia. So my question is, uh, so I've been following the bill uh, as it's been passing through the House of Lords, so I guess it's probably more a question for the people from the Cabinet Office. So uh, Lord True, he did kind of accept that there will probably be quite some significant changes to the bill, and obviously the 200 amendments is, is a, a reflection of that. Of course, not all of that is from the government. Um, I guess my question is in terms of next steps or as it moves towards the House of Commons, probably after summer recess, um, what kind of areas is the government expecting to kind of reform the procurement bill around in terms of what parts and what sections? Because I'm assuming that more amendments will probably be tabled in the House of Commons as well. Great. Let's come to Cabinet Office colleagues on those two questions. On systems? Yeah. Um, yes. So it's definitely something that we have got built into our, our, our plan. Um, I think the, the challenge with... Um, Having centralisation is getting that integration piece, and as Ed said, there were 71 different things that we need to work with. Mm. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of identifying what the user needs are, etc. But that's all happening in in parallel. Um, I'm being a bit cagey because every time I describe the system, I get in trouble with my digital colleagues because that's not actually how it's <laughs> it's going to work. But is there anything else that we can add on that? No, other than that, we know we, we know we know we yeah. need to do it, uh, and obviously. You know, I know it's not. I know it's not just e senders, uh, but but you know we we, we have we, we have uh, uh, relationships with them that we uh, 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 exercised when we were developing find a tender during Brexit. So um, we'll we'll be working with uh, systems providers uh, to, to make sure that the bill can be delivered as intended. Um, I, I think clearly uh, you've heard uh, for the second question. You've you've heard at least one of the areas where there's going to be uh, parliamentary debate. I obviously can't. Preempt uh, what, uh, how committees going to go, what issues are going to be raised by by members, but but clearly, you know, all, all amendments will be will be carefully considered and debated as the bill goes through uh, both the Lords and the Commons. So I think it'll be a case, as Lindsay advised, of uh, following following those proceedings and and, and see how the debates uh, pan out and, and and what the position is at the end of that. Right, question for uh, Mark and Laura from online from uh, Keith Luck, who said. Uh, Picking up on the point that the bill is evolutionary more than revolutionary, what would a revolutionary bill look like? And possibly uh, one for Cabinet colleagues, uh, why was the opportunity not taken this time? I suspect we could be here for another hour describing what a revolutionary bill might have looked like. Perhaps you could each identify one thing that you would like to see in the bill that isn't currently in the bill. Um, so something that isn't in the bill, I think, is a means to deal with the challenge issue. Um, challenge is a, is a problem, I think, culturally. Um, I don't think anybody's afraid of a challenge. People get things wrong, that's fine. But sometimes challenge is deployed as a strategy for uh, managing a commissioner, I might say. Um, and I think that's a real problem because it percolates through the system as nervousness, uh, a desire not to get caught out, and a barrier to innovation. So I think I'm really disappointed that we've not collectively found a way for making challenge less onerous, more positive, and um, not the barrier that it can be culturally to innovation. So you know, I think we really need to come back to that um, because I think it, 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 it's a possible thing that might trip us up as we go on the journey. So I do think that's pretty important. 
Oh. And I'd agree with that. And I think it's quite interesting because the green paper, I think, promised you know, quite a bit more in relation to it. And if you speak to a procurement practitioner, usually when you say what's wrong with the current system, bid challenge is usually you know, the number one thing that comes up. And yet this is an area where really we're seeing in practice kind of tweaks around the edges. We're not seeing anything kind of fundamentally change in relation to bid challenges. And I think something like a tribunal system, which has been debated at length, for example, to offer quicker decisions in relation to lower value contracts, for example, you know, far more decisions being made on paper so that you don't have to have, you know, barristers debating every point. And, you know, it's quite often the same three barristers debating the same few points in front of the same judges, you know, which is not an effective way of spending any kind of, you know, public or private funds. Um, so I think that is the area where, you know, really, I think, you know, some, some real changes could have been made to the system. And I agree that I think then they would have affected behaviours throughout the entire system. Um, so I, I would agree with Mark. I'm not going to ask cabinet office colleagues to commit to doing that uh, <laughs> right here and now, but certainly something for them to, to, to take away uh, and consider further. Um, we've come to the end of the, our time, so with that, I'm going to draw the discussion to a close. Uh, thank you very much to our four panellists for a really fascinating uh, discussion, uh, to Burgess Salmon for supporting the event, uh, and to all those who've uh, watched or listened uh, today or later. Uh, our next event will be uh, in conversation with Jeremy Hunt on Monday the 4th of July. Uh, do join us for that if you can. Uh, until then, thank you and goodbye. Uh, and for everyone still here, I hope you'll join us for a... Uh...